I am Court Green. And I'm Peter Constanchin. And we are glad to be coming to you from a beautiful spring day. We're not coming from a day on a beautiful spring day. On today. Today. The day that the Lord has made? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Okay. We're getting silly now. <laughs> I am going to throw it over to Peter and he's going to talk to you about verses and such. Okay. So today uh, we're, we're coming to you from the lectionary as usual. And we don't often look at the Psalms, uh, but we're going to take a psalm on today. Psalm 22, which maybe you are familiar with. It is the psalm that starts with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words that you may be familiar with that Jesus quoted on the cross. And if you didn't know that Jesus was quoting a psalm, I invite you to go and read Psalm 22 and see maybe what he was referring to. But today we're reading a part of the psalm that turns a corner away from the whole, God, why are you causing all of my problems? And it turns more into the direction of, um, of praise, which a lot of psalms do, and it's kind of a curious pattern. Um, I wonder what you make of that, Court. Have you seen that before? I have, and I've certainly seen it in this one, um, which we're going to talk about today. Interestingly enough, the very first thing that I ever wrote theologically Hmm. was about just that. Is Psalm 22 an accusation from Jesus when he quotes it uh, to God? And is it a psalm of nothing of despair? Specifically when Jesus quotes it, was it just despair and giving up? And it was my first theological assignment given to me as a freshman in college i got an a on it mm. wow good for you didn't know i was capable of that mm. anyway so i was just brought back to that when you were talking a minute ago yeah so we've got questions about psalm 22 and psalms in general you know how how is it they can start off so strong with uh, the psalmist being angry at god and um or feeling abandoned by god or or feeling um threatened on all sides by enemies and then somewhere along the line a lot of them go ahead and read i mean they they take this pivot and then all of a sudden uh i will declare your name to my brothers and sisters i will praise you in the very center of the congregation you know some line like that where all of a sudden something has been resolved such that or maybe the psalmist we don't know we'll talk about maybe what is what is the cause of that pivot but, uh, but then it turns to praise, and oftentimes there's a look to the future. And we want to talk about that today, too, because I think, um, if, I think times of adversity can, can, can force us to look at the future differently. And I think many of us have done that this year in co- kind of um, going back to that age-old question of, you know, what will, what will the future be like? What, what, what world is left for our children and our children's children uh, um, what kind of world are we handing to, to them? What will future generations say about us? An article, an article came out either yesterday or the day before, and I didn't read it. I just skimmed it. So I'll just start with the admission. But it is, should you be guilty for bringing a child into the world mm. in 2021? Like, are you a bad person for doing that because wow. of overcrowding because of all the stuff that's going on are you being fair to the environment are you being fair to that child sounds like that sounds like a thanos argument maybe but it 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 floored me and then the author is like 
by the way, I just did. You know, but I feel guilty about it. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, I, I don't know why I brought that up. Except yeah. that you just well, said something that triggered it. Well, no, and I think it's a pretty common... Um, oh, yeah, what world will we be handing them? ...feeling that generations have and as they consider the future. So we're going to talk about that because that song talks about that today. So I'm excited. So let's get into it. Let's start with the reading. Would you read for us, Court? I will. Psalm 22, 25 through 31. This is right after the pivot. So we have the despair. Why have you forsaken me? It goes on for a while. And then we pivot to this. 22, 25-31. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear God. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. To him, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. Thus ends the reading. Thanks be to God. So one thing that we haven't talked about that I'm just going to bring up because I'll forget it if I don't, that I didn't think about until I was just reading it out loud, is this part about dead people. Mm. Um, the Let's see. Mine says, uh, indeed... 29? Yeah, verse 29. Mine translates a little differently, um, but there still is this part about all who are descending to the dust will kneel before him. Uh, I think yours said something about those who are asleep. It says both. So first it says, this is the NRSV, and yours is CEV? Yeah, Common English Bible. Yeah, CEB. All right, so the New Revised Standard Version says, to him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Mm. Sleeping in the earth is one of many euphemisms mm. that is used for death. Yeah. In the, if you care, dear listener, mm-hmm. Masoretic Hebrew, mm. um, which is a whole big thing I could go into, but I'm not. But uh, they use a lot of euf- euphemisms for a lot of things, and death is one of them. A lot of times it's sleep in, uh, in the earth or go to the earth. Sometimes it's the opposite direction. It's ascend to the fathers, go to be with their fathers. It's just a way. We do the same thing. I mean, how often do you say, oh, I'm sorry your loved one died? You don't. You say, I'm so sorry for your loss. Or they passed away. away, And so we do the same thing. So we can understand that. But it, it, it it is a very big shift to go from, God, you turned away from me and left me just to, you know, flounder on my own to God, you have dominion over everything, even beyond death. Mm-hmm. That's a big, big change. Yeah, for sure. I don't know why mine says, but it, my translation says, indeed, all the earth's powerful will worship him. All who are descending to the dust will kneel before him. I think that must be a totally different um, scriptural I, source. It, it must be. Um, the note here says all the earth's powerful it, um, 
there's a correction that all the earth's powerful have eaten and will worship. I don't know what that means. I don't either. Okay. Well, anyway. We don't make the big bucks. We, we are not the guys that sit in a room and just sit there and translate all day long. We'll kick that up to the theologians yeah. to, to fill us in on. Yeah. Be- better Hebrew scholars than we. Okay. But yeah, uh, so there's this, uh, there, there is a sense, I think um, Christians will look at this and say, uh, this is about the resurrection, you know, that those who are asleep in the earth, uh, who are dead, or who are even those who are dying, all of us together will worship God. And we see this sort of vision of the resurrection there. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's a, big, it's a big pivot from God, you've abandoned me, to like, actually, everybody who's ever died is going to worship you. And I imagine that a lot of people who die like feel like God has abandoned them, or who are dying feel like God has abandoned them. So, um, so it's a big it's a big pivot indeed. Do you feel like you understand why he makes that pivot, or how how he? I think it is a testament to the intense hopefulness mm-hmm. that an eternal an eternal and limitless God offers. Mm. Um, because if there's hope even after the grave, this is what Christians have been banking on for quite a while now mm-hmm. if there's hope even after the grave that that would seem to be the place where all hope is lost mm-hmm. but that is a testament to how much hope there really is and we find that hope not because of a specific thing that God has done I mean you can find it in the cross if you want to sure but just the nature of God mm. the, the, the nature of God is a lot but put a very elementary summary on it it is to be Mm. to just exist to be eternal Mm. and to be loving Mm. again just a really 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 um, incomplete summary of, of who God is but if you read from cover to cover of the Bible, you see those characteristics throughout God almost every time God appears. And the the lectionary, will, like other scriptures in the lectionary for this week, will get into that. First John four seven through twenty one, for example, which um, we don't have time to get into, but I do recommend that if that's something that well, God is love. Whoever does not love, love does not know God. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I read it backwards. It actually says, "Whoever does not know love." does not know God for God is love yeah yeah and so so we do see that throughout scripture Um, and so one of the questions I started off with that I think it it, it kind of like resonates for me through this psalm it it comes from these last verses here Um, it, it says in my translation verse 30 and 31 future generations will serve him generations to come will be told about my Lord they will proclaim God's righteousness to those yet born, not yet born, telling them what God has done. And, uh, you know, that really causes me to wonder, how come we're not seeing that today in our churches? Well, what do you mean by how come we're not seeing that? Yet? Are you saying you just look around and you have a an absence of an age group? Or are you saying that, you, people are just like well, kids these days, or what? What is the evidence that we're not seeing it? I think probably I think both. Uh, I mean, if you if you look at um, statistics uh, nationally, it looks like church attendance is way down. 
Um, and then uh, I happen to have a, a small subset, which is not a representative sample of churches in America, but my churches are older congregations, and I hear regularly, you know, we just need to get some young people in here. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to get some families in here or something like, you know, as if that's the solution. And, and I wonder, you know, it's not like the families stop existing. It's not like young people stopped existing. Um, but we're not seeing the sort of continuity from generation to generation in the church that uh, maybe they did uh, for three, four decades ago. And I wonder, you know, what are we missing? Because this scripture to me, well, let me just say that I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of like, uh, what's the, what do I want to say? The, the, an outcomes focused kind of guy like uh Would that be teleological i i don't know what the what the theological Focus is on the end game well it's just like a like a you know if we're talking about a factory that makes cars like if it's making cars that are busted then there's something wrong with the factory gotcha you know practical so, yeah well yeah so sort of a systems level i guess like so my my i go straight instead of going to like what's wrong with the cars I go to what's wrong at the factory, right? And so I look at the churches that we have, and those I see as the outcome. So then I go back upstream and say, well, what's the problem with the system? You know, because the outcome is that our churches look like they're dying. Our churches look like they're not having a lot of young people show up. Um, So then instead of asking, which I know a lot of people do, and it's okay, but instead of asking, well, what's wrong with young people these days? I go back upstream and I say, well, what's wrong with the church and what's wrong with our vision of the future and what's wrong with our belief in God and what's wrong with our practice of worship that, that is not appealing to young people. And not to say that young people, are the, you know, their, their interests are, the, are how we should live our lives, but what, what's not being communicated in this message? I think that there's a critical clue in the verses you read, Psalm 22, 30, and 31, but you got to look for it. Hmm. Prosperity, I'm reading it again. Prosperity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. Remember that word. Mm-hmm. They will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn. Mm. So we have we have three generations at play, play here. You have the current, mm-hmm. the future, and those yet unborn. Mm-hmm. The current, here's the verb, but I'm going to change it from one tense to another the current generation tells mm-hmm. about the lord then the future generation proclaims which is almost the same act right what i think that we are not seeing is that the f- current generation does something the future generation does the same thing which means that the current generation allowed them to. Mm. Far too often... What do you mean by allowed them to? Getting there. Far too often, when you hear someone say, well, we just need some young people in here, what is not mentioned but is implied is, we're not going to let them do anything. Mm. We're not going to let them have any control over anything. We're not going to let them have any say over anything. We just need them to come here and do what we want them to do. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's not what happens here. Right. 
they tell the young people, the, the next generation. The current generation tells the future generation. Mm-hmm. And then gets out of the way. Mm. And allows them to take it and make it theirs. Because now the next generation is proclaiming. So if we take that potential future tense and make it current, it would say... Um, let, let me change both tenses. Future generation. Well, future generations were told about the Lord, and are now telling His deliverance to people yet unborn. So, the next generation comes in, and it's theirs to change and shape and make, and they have some control. What we have done hmm. since at least the fifties, mm-hmm. probably further back than that is we, the Protestant church in America, as a generality, has said, we are holding control, but be here. Hmm. Which is an an implication that when you do come here, you are controlled by us. Because we want you here, we want to form you, but you don't get a say in the matter. And that is not the only thing. But in my opinion, as far as it relates to these verses, that may be the answer to your question. What's wrong with the factory? Mm. Why is it that we don't have young people? Well, we we told them to come to a place, and when we came, we gave them no agency. Mm. And we did not allow them to fully participate. Mm. And so if you see the churches that, not just in this area, but you know, at least in the United States, the churches that are busting at the scenes with young people, number one, that's mostly all they have. Because mm-hmm. there's no one else to tell them what to do there. Mm-hmm. Number two, they have some sort of agency. They really belong to it. Mm-hmm. They don't go before this board and this body and ask for permission mm-hmm. to worship how they see fit. Yeah. They show up and worship how they see fit. Right. And so the church, the established you know, mainline Protestant churches in America may have missed the boat here mm. because we've just said we need your rear ends in the seats, mm-hmm. but be quiet and leave and let us do, make sure you tithe and then leave and don't make any trouble because we don't want anybody up, upsetting the apple cart, mm-hmm. which is a way of saying we don't want to relinquish the control we have. And whose church is it? Mm-hmm. You know, is it ours? Is it is it a certain subgroup? In a lot of churches, yes, mm. but that's not how it should be, right? Yeah, to me, it it seems like there's a problem of narrative here. You know, uh, so I, when I was in Ecuador, I got special training with uh, to to manage cacao plants for chocolate production mm-hmm. and I'm saying uh-huh like I know what any of that is but I don't but go ahead well they're, 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 it's a great product I mean and the, the, they're perennial small trees and it's good for farmers because they can work in the shade instead of having to you know plant corn or whatever by hand and it's less less work uh, but there was this organization there at the time ACDI VOCA not, not to shame this organization but they had a narrative they had been in the country training farmers for the past four years it was a five-year project so when they got in they the first thing they did when they got in was they started greenhouses they started uh, nurseries they're they're producing all these 
uh, productive little seedlings, cacao plants. Then in years two and three, they were planting, they were doing irrigation, um, fertilizer, whatever. Then in year four, they were doing harvesting, post-harvest processing, that kind of thing. So when we showed up in year four as Peace Corps volunteers and got special training and went to our communities and said, hey, our communities haven't really been a part of whatever you've been doing. We need, we need nurseries now. We need new plants, young plants and whatever. They said, uh, well, we're not really working on that anymore. Because mm-hmm. right? their narrative the was, we, we came, we did the nurseries, we did the fertilizer, we're doing the harvesting. And, you know, and so there was this five-year arc, and they didn't want to start again with, like, let's start from the beginning. Because to do that would say, we didn't solve the whole problem. Mm-hmm. You know? And they, that, they didn't have any space in their budget or in their narrative for that. And what I hear in verse 31, it says um, that God's righteous, uh, that these, this next generation will proclaim God's righteousness to those yet unborn, telling them what God has done. To me, that's a narrative that I know is happening already. Like, I know that people are talking about how God is, young people are talking about how God is working in their lives, but they might not be doing it in the context of our churches. Why? Because we already have a narrative. And our narrative was that we successfully built these huge churches and we used to have all these people. And so if we if we start try to go back to the beginning and say, hey, we're... We actually need to be going out into the community and knocking on doors and creating small groups and like actually figuring out what's going on with people's lives and supporting them through that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit with the narrative that we have, which is one of success, accomplishment, and now like everything is fixed. They know where they are. Mm-hmm. They know where we are. If mm-hmm. they need us, they'll come. Right. I've heard that so many times. Not just in, I mean, not, not in this church necessarily, but in pretty much in every church I've been in. Mm-hmm. Someone has said, well, they know where we are. Mm-hmm. So this is, this, is, this is a conflict then between our timelines and God's timeline. Go on. And you mentioned earlier that part of what is the comforting about our understanding of God is God's eternality. Mm-hmm. But that's a very difficult concept for us to wrap our heads around. I would say impossible. Impossible, right. So, like, if God is eternal... What's the narrative arc of that story if, if Eternity. it goes on forever, right? Whereas our lives are short, and even the lives of our communities are short in comparison. Our memory is, uh, uh, you know, limited to, to craft a story. So I really heard what you said earlier about, you know, trying to control what it is that's going on in our churches, because I think... That, that comes back to this idea of, like, what is the story we're telling about what we've accomplished here, you know? And, uh, and, and, and I think, though, to break out of that, we have to ask the question, well, what is God doing? And to admit that we may never have the answer to that question completely. And the next step is, are we okay with that, with not having the answers? Mm. And I don't know. I, mean, I, want, I, I want to say yes, and usually I do say yes, mm. but inside i want the answers yeah well and and so the i think what's challenging and beautiful about the psalms is that it forces us to ask these questions yeah questions that we maybe can't answer completely 
uh, now or ever. Uh, but we just have to sit and wrestle with this mm-hmm. this question. So one of the things that I've been thinking about is how this pattern is what we kind of led with when we started the program. This pattern that starts with despair and then out of left field, it seems, makes this drastic turn towards hope. I think about Jeremiah, mm-hmm. which is mostly despair. <laughs> I love the book of Jeremiah. It is so honest and raw and great. But in Jeremiah, is it 20 where you get the big lament? I wish I wasn't born, all that stuff. All of a sudden, but I know that everything's going to be fine. It, it, it's so weird. And so I just brought God that has up. plans to prosper you. Is that well, the, that's not where it goes? No, but is it um, in Jeremiah though? Is that that it? is in Jeremiah? Okay, and that's Often the one that everyone take, remembers. Glad you said that. <laughs> everyone doesn't remember it. Everyone mm. has heard it mm. in a segment, right? And thinks they remember it. They remember the words that are used, yeah. But they have no idea what it says and probably have never heard it. Mm. Um, it, it is. It, if you read that in context, it does not say what people quote that to me. Anyway. So all that said, um, but I only bring up Jeremiah to to mention that this pattern is used so many times in the prophets and several other places in the Bible, all kind of psalms, obviously. Mm. But there's this there's this despair. Everything looks hopeless, and you inject the God of eternity. And suddenly there's a shift towards hope. And what frustrates us is that we want to see the moment where it got hopeful. But we're, we're not given that. Hmm. All we're given is God's presence or the realization that God is available and hasn't really left you. And suddenly there's hope. And I think the pattern itself testifies to the fact that as long as God exists, that there is hope. Hmm. And here's where I'm getting to with all of this. We've been talking about churches and you know why is the factory broken? It's not making the cars we think it should be or whatever. We are in a very strange time as yeah. ministers and as this just the world. Mm-hmm. If you're married to the idea that church like it once was will be again... It is a desperate time. Mm. It is a hopeless time. Mm. And I hate to tell you, it will continue to be so. But the you know, the structure of the psalm, in those moments of hopeless hopelessness, you may not be given some quote unquote answer or some moment where you know hope is coming. But as long as God exists, the church will exist may not have paid staff that's unfortunate for peter and i but as long as god exists the work of god will need to be done by people on this earth and therefore the church will exist there is hope for no other reason than because god exists Hmm. so do you think that these psalms as as uh confusing and um inexplicable as they are could serve as some kind of a model for us? Yes. How so? Well, you, you can't look at them word for word and say, oh, that's what we'll do. Mm. Because it's a different world to which it was writ- written. Yeah. However, we can... I mean, I spent time in my 
the men project working with these psalms. In fact, the specific uh, idea, well, I didn't use this psalm, but the specific idea behind 30 and 31 in today's psalm, passing things to future generations. Yeah. Well, that's something we got to do. That's something that's important. So it's, it's, it's something that speaks to today's context. And maybe it tells us we've dropped the ball and we need to get our act together. But whatever it tells us, it is absolutely applicable to our lives. Mm. So I mean, you got to do some work to get there. Yeah. So. And I think the work that we have to do is uncomfortable. But I also see this psalm as a model for that as well. Namely, like we have to just admit when we're in despair. We have to admit when things are not going the way we want to. We have to lament and ask for God to show up. Are you saying that God actually hears your prayers if you're not happy? <laughs> That's preposterous. Well, this God is a little bit different from other gods. I thought that God only listened to us when we were singing praying praise songs. Mm. Songs, 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 both. Yeah. I guess I was wrong. Well, wait and see. <laughs> No, I, I think this this God is different because of that. You know, we see that in the story of the Israelites mm-hmm. that um, that that even in Egypt, for some reason, this God Yahweh heard their cries when they didn't have anything to offer, when they didn't have a temple to praise in, mm-hmm. when they didn't have bulls to sacrifice, when they were enslaved, and when they were uh, at their wits' end because of the way that they were being treated by the new Pharaoh. God heard their call. And that's why they worship him. <laughs> you know? And I think sometimes we lose that as Christians and we think, you know, that that we we go back to this thought of like how the other gods worked back then, which is that they'll only listen if you've got enough bulls. Yeah. They'll only yeah, you listen get their attention. If you yeah, you got to get their attention. You got to be someone important for God to listen to you. You got to be the preacher because the preacher's got a special connection with God. Oh my gosh, my dad still thinks that. Right, you've yeah. heard that before. <laughs> That's that pre-Israelite thinking though. Pre-monotheism, pre-Judaism, pre-Christianity thinking that God is somehow reserving God's time for those who are special. But this God, the one we worship, is the one who shows up when we've got nothing to offer. I'm glad you said that because that kind of speaks to this frustration that we have with the, you know, the structure of these psalms that it seems like there's hopelessness and then suddenly there's hope and we don't get a why. Mm-hmm. It's because if there was a why, then we could just say, okay, well, I'll do that, and then God will show up and help me. Mm-hmm. But I think the specific point mm-hmm. is that God shows up when we don't have anything to offer. Yeah. It's nothing we did. That's why we have the plagues, going back to your out of Egypt example, because it had to be shown that this was nothing Moses did, right? Mm-hmm. It's the greatness of God, and that's it. Right. And it is in our despair when we know that it can't be us that is rescuing ourselves. Right. When God shows up and says, okay, now you're ready. Mm. And I just do not pretend that I'm giving you some formula. This ain't the prayer prayer of Jabez here. This is uh, just what I glean from not the Psalms themselves, but the way they are written mm-hmm. in this pattern of hopelessness, 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 hopelessness. Oh, suddenly hope. 
is because we get to a point where we're so desperate that we cannot it it cannot be said of us oh look they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps right that that narrative's not going to work with god yeah uh with this god anyway um there are plenty of other gods i hate to break it to you other gods being worshiped even today i mean we don't maybe we don't talk about it like that but there you know there there is there are some gods for whom uh the whole bootstraps narrative thing works but is far as I can tell in our example here in Psalms, the, 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 what precedes God's action and an acknowledgement of God's action and the hope for the future is not, I did everything that I was supposed to do. What precedes God's action is, I admit that I was desperate. That may be the problem on your pretend car factory's assembly line. Mm. Because for generation after generation, we have we have really clung to that idea that you just said, I did everything I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And even when we try to analyze what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong, we say, well, we're doing what we're supposed to do. They're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Or we say, well, we should have done this more. Mm-hmm. And maybe the point was that God wasn't in it. And it mm-hmm. was about us trying to find these formulas for success. And you know, what, what do we do? We go out, we, we, uh, we had, was it, it wasn't Marsh, it was uh, Gordon, was talking about how one church had really taken off. And so they like required other ministers to go and learn what they did and repeat it. And there's some things that just work, yeah. right? Yeah. But... I mean, that's why we have infomercials. Mm. Because complain about them all you want. People are buying their mess. They must work. Yeah. But in the church where it's not supposed to be about us, where we see in the Bible over and over again that it's about the God who works through us, not us doing a good job. And sometimes in spite of us. Most of the time. Yeah. In spite of us. What we have is a God who doesn't want you to, quote-unquote, get the formula right. Instead, we have a God that just wants you to be willing. Hmm. And honest. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then can use you because at that point, we see that it's God moving, God building, God hopefully growing, God taking the reins. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, no. Let me, let me do it a different way because we're in the South. Jesus taking the wheel. Take the wheel. Yeah. And, and and it's not us. Yeah. And so even in our attempts to assess what we're doing wrong or to establish what we can do right, mm. we I don't know, do Methodists do job interviews or are you just like, okay, I'm here now? Yeah, we do. Okay. Yeah. Panel interviews. Well, how, how often? Well, this is your first gig, so probably not that often. I have a review every year okay. with a panel. So at some point. That's some, basically a job interview. Someone's going to ask you. Mm-hmm. Or has, and they have me over and over again. Hmm. Okay, so what do you envision for how to do this and that and the other? And that's just because we're Americans. Is that that's how we think? Yeah. But this psalm doesn't like that question. Mm-hmm. And I think the overarching narrative of the Bible doesn't like that question because then we're the main character. Well. Vision is an important word, mm-hmm. but it's where we get that vision. I think that that matters. Yeah, it's yeah. not about what we do, right, or what we plan. 
yeah, and our churches won't be successful based on our imaginative, our imaginative skill. They will be successful uh, based on our, you know, willingness to follow God's direction. And I think what I see here is, um, you know, maybe it's time for the church to admit where we've failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's look around and, and look at our communities and say, hey, you know, there's work to be done that we didn't accomplish. Uh, and we don't know what to do. And maybe a healthy dose of honesty is what it takes to connect with the current generation, the future generation, and those yet unborn to say, hey, we tried. And we still are willing to try and put the time in. But this is beyond us, and we need help. Yeah. And most people would think that that's like step one of a longer process. But to be honest, if we're completely candid and open and and willing to say, hey, we don't have the answers, Mm. if the next step, well, if with that step we're also saying, but we trust that you do, Lord, and we'll follow, Mm -hmm. that may be the entirety of the process that's Mm -hmm. needed. Mm -hmm. Can I take this to a, a, can I do like the psalm and give you a hard transition that doesn't have any explanation? Go ahead. So, uh, not going to segue this at all. Um, there is this verse in here. So I think it's 27. Yes, Psalm 22, 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Oh, and that's great. And all the families of the nations shall fall and worship before him. That's actually not what I wanted to read. Okay, 28. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nation. If that statement is true... If God is has complete dominion, if Jesus is Lord, well, we're in Old Testament. Okay, okay, we're going to go Yahweh here. All right. If Yahweh is in is in complete control and rules over the nations, can we? Are we really a Christian nation? Is there really a Church of the United States? I mean, there's not an official one because of separation of church and state. But should I really have a United States flag in my sanctuary? Um, I don't know if you do or not. But Well, just think about what that would look like to someone who's a Christian who comes from uh, a country like Iraq. Yeah. Or Venezuela. Or, or Syria. Or Russia. That's the one I was trying to think of, Syria. Yeah. Syria or Russia. Uh Pick a country where the U.S. has a animosity, you know, has an antagonistic relationship to that country. You will find Christians there. Mm-hmm. If we are truly Christians, would would they feel comfortable worshiping in our church with us? Yeah, I think that's the question, and and it comes down to you can even use this. You you can ask yourself this question: Am I a Christian American? Or am I an American Christian? That is to say, what is the foundation of my identity? Do I ground myself more in my identity identity as a follower of Jesus Christ or in my uh, citizenship to this empire, this country? Um, And it's a tough question. We've we've not really uh, 
been forced to make a choice on that for a long time, for generations. In fact, it's been, oftentimes, it's been encouraged to merge them. Yeah. Uh, but that hampers us. That that limits us because when the nation that we identify with, with our citizenship, when we choose to call ourselves American, when that American nation does things that are not Christian, we're stuck with our feet in our mouth. Mm-hmm. When the when the when the nation treats children of whatever citizenship as if they were animals mm-hmm. by putting them in cages, that's when it really matters which comes first. Yeah. Are we Christians or are we Americans? Because we have witness, we have a witness to proclaim on behalf of Christian people that says that we care for orphans. Right? And that God is with those who are afflicted. Mm-hmm. But if it's not in our narrative to say that this is wrong because of how we identify based on our citizenship, then future generations are going to hear that silence loud mm-hmm. and clear. So I'm going to play a fun game with myself that I call Segway After the Fact that I just named right now. Okay. So here's your segue. I took that in a weird place, but... Now that I can see it, it, and now that Peter has explained that so well, I kind of see how it goes with what we were talking about. Because this this question of are we Christians or are we Americans, are we American Christians or are we Christians who just happen to be Americans, um, it 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 may be a part of this. You know, what did we do? that the future gener- generation is not proclaiming now. Mm. Or maybe they're proclaiming something that we don't like or whatever, whatever it is. But what have we done to not instill what we thought we needed to instill into the next generation? And another way of saying that, where are they? Hmm. And I think marrying church and state, which we did, we the American church, May have been one of those times where we've essentially may have been one of those reasons why we no longer have this this understanding that I am I am a Christian I was raised a Christian and will remain a Christian and now for the first time we've dropped below fifty percent mm-hmm. church attenders right mm-hmm. um, and, and perhaps that's one of the many reasons but that just the verse let's see twenty eight. When I read, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations, I used to just understand that and say, okay. But the more I am watching the news and seeing all this this craziness in our world where it comes to politics, the more I wonder, for many, is that even true anymore? Hmm. And that's, what, that's the only reason I brought it up. And because we've married church and state in our minds... It is so hard for people to say, but I'll serve God. They might say it. They might pay it lip service. But for many of us, it's I'll serve God as defined by my political beliefs. And I don't think God's on board with that. Hmm. So there's your challenging weird thought, court thought for today. So uh, we'll just leave our listeners with a few questions. Obviously, we don't have the answer to 
to to solve the world's problems or to solve the problems of the church. Uh, but what is our narrative? You know, what is the narrative that we tell about our church? Uh, when was it successful? When, when do we? What do we hope for, for our churches? And what is the what is the truth that we are not proclaiming, or the truth that um, that needs to be proclaimed? And what do we need to admit that that has gone wrong? What do we? Where do we need to admit defeat? Uh, these are all questions I think that I'm left with after reading this psalm. Those are good questions or challenging questions, and I'll leave you with one more thing. Remember that even when we don't know how, even when we're not given a prescription, the fact that God is eternal means that there is always hope. So if if you read this or if you heard us talking about it and your thoughts is your thoughts are, wow, we've really messed up. With an eternal God, there is always hope. So get out there, tell the next generation proclaim to the future people yet unborn and live for God in whatever way you can. For Pastor Potluck, I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And it's, it's been real. Thank y'all. Happy Mother's Day to all those mothers, spiritual mothers, uh, biological mothers, adoptive mothers, foster mothers out there, uh, grandmothers as well. We will not be on the show next week. But we will be back following Mother's Day. So uh, have a blessed two weeks, and we will see you soon. Or we'll hear you soon. Or you'll hear us soon. We won't see them. (laughs) Peace. Peace.